0: Well, one of the primary things we do to people, one of the primary things we do to people whenever they come into church membership is we try toward them, we try to clarify the gospel to them and with them. And so nearly half of the membership class, for those of you who have joined the last several years, nearly half of the membership class in coming into Crosspoint is just dedicated to what is the gospel and explaining the gospel as clearly as possible. Even in my own premarital sessions that I have with people, session one and even more formal counseling, session one, no matter for whatever reason we're coming together, lesson number one is always what is the gospel and clarifying what the gospel is because from there we can then talk about biblically and better what a marriage is or maybe what you're going through or what we're going through with a group of people. And this is because the gospel, the good news about God redeeming His people with a marriage, or with the downtrodden, or within a partnership of membership, the gospel exclusively has everything to do with those things, as rightly and best designed by God. Now, our sermon this morning, and God willing, next week's sermon, uh, these two sermons will serve as a, as a pure foundation in many ways for what the Bible says of what the gospel is. Everything, literally everything from this passage is where things change in the Scriptures. So for just over a month, we've been in just the first couple of chapters in the book of Genesis, and it has been incredibly encouraging. I've been encouraged and just in the last month, in the last couple of weeks, of all of your all's independent relishing at the truth and the joy that comes to us from the book of Genesis. Comments after the service, emails in text to me. There's, there's been this unique outpouring of this book is incredibly awesome. And it is. And it has been. And I got to be honest, whenever I regularly text uh, other pastor friends about where we are and what we're doing. Some of these friends have already preached Genesis or some are preaching them beginning in the new year. But anytime we're talking about this, I can't help but tell them that as I keep studying Genesis, as we keep locking in and going in, as, as I come to you now and preach from this book, very often I'll just take a step back from what Moses is overarchingly doing and I just kind of get emotional. I can't believe that what he's created I can't believe at how he made us. I can't believe uh, at the beauty of what existed. And then it comes to this incredible, almost ditch in the road where everything goes horribly bad. Uh, The goodness of Genesis 1 and 2, it just feels so distant from us. The beauty of Genesis 1 and 2 seems so otherworldly to all of us, and that's because we, we have... We have no idea what it's like. We have no idea what what overwhelming sweetness and goodness in relationship is. We have we have no idea what it's like to live in a sinless world. We wonder about those things because we so often know that we are in a Genesis three world. And that's because the Bible immediately tells and describes how everything went horribly wrong. It is clear from the beginning that God made everything good. And anytime I might ask someone to share their testimony with me or share how God saved them or even ask them to share or clarify the gospel, it always sounds out the same. There's like one or two sentences, everything was really good. <laughs> and then it got really bad, really dark, really fast. Just after instructing us on how in the beginning uh, this passage, well, everything was good, this passage displays our true current state. Remember how Moses is writing to a particular people who in many ways were hunted they were attacked, they were isolated, they were sold off in the slavery. This, this context of what Moses is writing to it in a specific historical context and time, he was writing to them, giving them a big picture of how good it was, but then zooming in and saying, this, this is why you feel the way you do. This is why you act the way they do, the way you do. This is why others act the way they do. So I want us to see it clearly this morning where Moses gives us several aims that he has from the text to teach us and encourage us of how we're supposed to go. Why are things today the way they are? Why are you the way you are? I think you'll be helped uh, if you understand this from a scripture. I think you'll be helped this morning if you have a Bible open in front of you. We're in the third chapter of the book of Genesis. If you're unfamiliar with the Bible Genesis is the very first book. It has very big numbers that are called chapter numbers and then very little numbers that are verse numbers. I'm at Genesis, first book, chapter three, third chapter, verse one, that little number one. I think it'll be helpful for you to see how God is instructing us about why things are the way they are today. I don't know if you've ever read a book like Genesis one through three, just all in one sitting. Uh, You would have noticed the dramatic shift that happens between uh, chapter 2 and chapter 3. Chapter 2, they were unashamed. It says they were naked. And then all of a sudden, five, six, seven verses later, it says that they now clothed themselves because they were hiding and they were ashamed. Why did that happen? What happened there? There is a significant change in the setting where we zoom in just a little bit more into the garden, where the words convey a darker, more urgent atmosphere. It was like the beginning of a beautiful sunrise at the beginning, but now all of a sudden it's like the lights on the stage grow dim and characters become, oh, their voices almost become a little bit deeper. The characters here, amazingly, are now in dialogue with one another for the first time, entering the stage unannounced as if the lights darken, bringing the world back to chaos. The narrative here shifts into a world where Satan appears, and he demonstrates his desire in his own work. If you look at verses 1 through 7 as a whole, you'll read about the history of what is called the doctrine or of original sin, or you will read the history of you and I, why we are the way we are. It all starts here. If you look at just chapter 3 as a whole, you'll see the story of a of a created man and woman who were called very good in the relationship with one another, where then the story shows that they fall, yet giving a glimmer of hope where the Redeemer begins to come on the scene. But I want us to dig in a little bit more, and I want to primarily zoom in on verses 1 through 5, where the characters develop around each other and form an intro into the catastrophic new natural state of man from here on. So Moses, the author of this text, has a couple of aims in mind. He's not just writing verses 1 through 7 to get to a certain place. Within verses 1 through 7, I think there are three clear aims that he has for you and I to understand. And the first one, if you're using notes provided for you on an outline in the bulletin, I don't have any notes for you. So I wanna, I'll clearly say I'm now at point one. I am now at point one where I think Moses's first aim is that someone, was after Adam and Eve, riding to a beaten down nation. God's word shows that something is hunting what was known previously as the king of the world. Adam is being hunted. Eve is being hunted. And something is coming after them with vengeance and terror, except they're not, they're not showing up like a tank would arrive on a field of battle. It says that he shows up very subtly. Look at verse 1 again. I'll, I'll read it to you. Now, the serpent was more crafty than any other beast of the field that the Lord God had made. The serpent here is the character that shows up in the midst of the garden. All of a sudden, there's, there's no intro for this. He just appears. And your translation might call the serpent crafty, might call him clever. Maybe you have that down, or shrewd, or even cunning. He's more cunning than, cunning than any other creature in the field. And in its complete original text, the word here uh, after more is most likely subtle. Even though it's not as descriptive or even juicy as another way that, that a warrior would come on the horizon, he, he's subtle as he approaches Adam and Eve. Other parts of Scripture give us a more developed picture of what we're looking at here, which often informs kind of the totality and vengeance and anger of recognizing that this serpent is not just a slithering beast or a, or a crouching tiger, but rather Revelation chapter 12 says that he is a great dragon. It calls him an ancient serpent who is called the devil. He's named there in the book of Revelation as Satan, talking about this serpent in particular. He's often described as the great deceiver, the deceiver of the world, it says in Revelation 12, where he was previously existing in glory, the serpent or the devil was existing previously, but then something happened, we read later on in the scriptures, that he was thrown out of heaven. This great, magnificent, now serpent was something glorious, But was thrown down, he and his cohorts with him. He and these other angels that were around him, they were thrown out. Now in Revelation chapter 20, this serpent is again described as a dragon, a serpent, giving the name Satan there. And the creature of the field who comes to Adam and Eve is the devil himself. That's who we're dealing with in this case, though he's subtle to us. It's like he's been imputed into a being in order to talk directly with Eve. And you might go, where did, <laughs> where did this come from? I thought, I thought God made everything and it was good. Adam had just named everything. So we would have to clearly think, Adam surely had seen this serpent before. Adam would have seen the serpent and even would have called him a serpent. Where did he come from? Where did this imputed terror record or interred terrorists who's wrecking havoc come from? Scripturally, we recognize in books like Isaiah and Ezekiel that Satan, who previously existed before Adam did, Satan once was the highest Angelic host of the heavens. Then he previously rebelled where he wanted to take God's glory and make it his own. So, who we're dealing with here is frankly one of the best ever, like a Hall of Famer in the Holy of Holies. But he's now God's worst. And he's staring Eve face to face. Later in the Bible, it describes his work as demonic, devilish. He's a devil. He's described as a beast. But at the start, Remember, what we have in mind at the start, we're dealing with an angelic, clever, subtle creature. Now, later in the Bible, he's described differently, but Satan in this text, he has a true craft and will seek to overcome Eve for several reasons. I think it'd be sufficient. Uh, be a sufficient reason that Satan should be cunning because he's so malicious. Malice. You and I might have personal experience with people of malice. Above everything else is the most productive outpouring of evil. You might think that he should show up and just start terrorizing everyone in his midst, but he he is more clever than that because he wants something in particular. Nobody would be more full of malice against man than Satan would. He proves that every day. You might feel that again and again. And that malice sharpens his inherent wisdom so that he becomes exceedingly subtle with those around him. So with all of that, you need to notice first uh, within this context that something is very clearly presented to us. This was Satan's first occasion of dealing with mankind when he was tempted with Eve and when he was even then more subtle than any other beast of the field with which the Lord God had made. But but I think it's also important to know that, that he had been there. He was there. You remember the language that, that God gave Adam in the garden where he was supposed to have dominion over the field? He was supposed to have ownership over everything there and how those words, that, that word of dominion uh, is a military word where, where you could imagine Adam is being set up and guard with maybe a shield and a sword Now that didn't say that he was but, but his mentality ought to be scanning around and looking around, God has given me this refuge and it is mine to protect it. I'm to have dominion over this field. And here comes someone that is very clever. Now, what I think is interesting here, I read this in a couple of places uh, last week where there's, there's Jewish historical thought. Uh, and I, I, don't, I don't think this is the case, but I, I do think it's very fascinating that's, that the serpent was in the garden, came up to Adam and Eve after Adam had already named everything that he'd been talking to. What's amazing is that Adam would have looked at things like a giraffe or a moose or a dinosaur and be like, they're not like me. And then when God made Eve out of the side of Adam, he then looked at Eve and said, bone of my bones, flesh of my flesh. So in some ways, Adam would have already sized up a serpent in the garden. We don't know what that would have looked like, and I don't want us to impute everything here, but you can imagine that, that this person would have been sized up by Adam and denied And what this Jewish author said is, "What do you do when someone denies you? What do you do when a king of the world denies you? You go for his girl." And what did what did the serpent do in this case? Who was after the people in the garden? A ferocious and cunning serpent, the one who was well skilled in the art of temptation. So you've got Satan working through a divinely made creature, lurking around and speaking to Eve, and this is how chapter three starts. So let's look at the, how this happens. We, we recognize what's there. First, something is after Adam and Eve, but then secondly, a second aim that Moses has is that Moses is wanting you to understand, and he's wanting to broadcast Satan's strategy on attacking people. So Moses, an aim that, that Moses is doing. Remember, he's writing to a certain people and he's saying the world is the way it is because Satan has arrived and tempted people to fall in their own sin on their own far fault. But look at how he's doing this. So secondly, his aim is to broadcast Satan's strategy. And there are going to be four subpoints of this, just to give you kind of some help on taking notes here. But Satan's purpose is to cause corruption against God. His purpose is to cause corruption against God, not just corruption for the sake of it, right? He's not like the Joker in the, in the movies Batman where he's just trying to stir everything up. He wants corruption against God. If you were a commander of an army, And you had unlimited powers and weapons. How would you go about pouring out wrath on your opposition? You would utterly flood their lives with everything that you had. Because you don't want anything left. You want total destruction. But that's not how Satan comes after people. While Satan wants chaos, more than anything else, Satan wants you to be defiant. Satan wants you to be defiant against a good God. He and his posse want to line you up, almost facing you, coming after you like an opposing army, but he doesn't want to defeat you. Keep that in mind. Satan doesn't want to destroy you like you and I might think of destroying someone. Satan wants to employ you to his army because his army is on a mission and it's the the downfall of God altogether. And so he wants you on his side. He wants to turn you around and have you actually fight against your God. Now make no mistake, he hates you. He's not doing this because he, he sized you up and sees you as good. He's not saying, there's a good warrior against the Lord's army. No, he hates you. But more than you, Satan, a fallen angel, hates God. And he wants your help. When you are attacked, Christian, by Satan, recognize that you are under what is called oppression of demonic forces, but that oppression wants to employ you and turn you around to challenge God. He wants God to be challenged. He wants the soldiers of the other army to lay down their armor and flee their commander and join them. He wants his wrathful spirit to grow in numbers and noise. He wants you to go into an utter state of rebellion by being convinced that he is a worthy captain to follow. I think within a couple of subpoints points here, we, we see how he does this. So he is after you, but he does this in a couple of ways. The first way he does this is Satan seeks to deconstruct Eve's beliefs. Satan seeks to deconstruct Eve's beliefs. Look at verse 1 again, the second part of it. And he said to the woman, Does God actually say, You shall not eat of any tree in the garden? This contains the first question in the Bible, the first question in the Bible that's ever asked. Now, you need to know that this is, I'm not attacking questions altogether. I think one of the strongest things you can do is ask good questions about God and His Word and His creation and His people. It's good to ask questions. But, but I want you to know that how the question here is being asked ought to, ought to make us learn of what questions ought to be. I love questions. I, I love learning about people through asking them questions. In fact, I've been encouraged by other people that sometimes when I pepper others with 95 questions right off the bat, that that might... Cause them to become a little bit of alarmed and interrogated by them. But we all want to know about other people. We all want to know about different things. And there are a lot of questions that are looking for answers, and there are also questions that are looking to dismantle someone. And in this case, Satan was not trying to understand the rules of life from Eve, was he? No, Satan was trying to dismantle her understanding of goodness or deconstruct her belief And who God is? Look at look at who asks the questions first. Who speaks first? It's not God, it's not man, but it's Satan, the crafty one. Look at what he did in that crafty question. See what Moses is doing here? Isn't isn't that interesting? And how he's bringing up our awareness of why things are the way they are. He's causing us to question God's goodness and God's rule. And there also is, I think, a snarkiness in his question. I think a lot of the times in the New Testament, you can read books like Paul and and understand that Paul, in some ways, not overwhelmingly, but some ways, Paul is a pretty sarcastic person. He asks sarcastic questions, knowing knowing the answer, and you ought to know the answer to this. But in many ways, this question itself, this is a snarky question. This is a question where if you were in your best fitting position, you would know better than even to answer it. You would just dismiss it altogether. There's a snarkiness to it. He's mocking you and asking this because the question that he asked was just answered a couple of verses earlier. The serpent opened the dialogue with a surprised, incredulous tone. He said to the woman, did God actually say, you shall not eat of any tree in the garden? And it was subtle. remember in baseball, um, I wasn't a great hitter in baseball because I had this incredible ability to not focus or pay attention to a ball coming at me. So I would think of other things at the same time. Plus, I don't know if I had a great swing, but I was caught up in thinking about other things. And it's amazing what you can do with people if you ask them the right question. So maybe you can, maybe you can line up behind someone who's golfing. They're about to make a, a, a 20-foot putt on the golf hole, a golf hole, uh, <laughs> whatever it's called. The place. All right. So, the hole. Thank you. All right. You're lining up behind him. They got a 20-foot putt. And all it takes is you to be like, oh, man, that's a a hard putt. I don't know about that one. Or, man, don't don't miss that one to the left. All of a sudden, you're in their mind. Like, I want to ask you right now, friends, don't think of a pink elephant. What are you doing? Don't think of it, right? So, all of a sudden... Satan is trying to cause a little bit of doubt there. Did God actually say that? Does God actually want you to not have something that's good? Does God actually want you to not listen to him? All of a sudden, it's a subtle thing. It was enticing. This is an example of what it means. So uh, from a biblical interpretation standpoint, you and I, when we read the Bible, we want to read the Bible according to what is on the line of Scripture. So what does the, the Bible verse say? What is the What does the chapter of the verse say? We want to stay on this line. We don't want to go below the line. We don't want to go above the line. But what Satan is doing here is he's taking the line that had previously been said to Eve by God, to Adam and Eve by God, and he's going below the line and saying, does God actually say that? Is that really what he meant? We see this all the time in today's modern contextual uh, Christianity where it's like, does God actually say that about sexuality? Is that what Jesus meant? How come it's not in red letters? Does, is this really what God wants to say going below the line there? Now, amazingly, what, is, what does Eve later do? Let's get into this while I'm on this random diatribe. What does Eve, la- Eve later do? She goes above the line. She adds to it. She becomes a legalist altogether. She said, no, God didn't say that. He said this. God never said what she said he said. All of a sudden, we see God gave them a clear line and how to follow him. And here's Satan dragging her down, quite literally. We see this so many times in modern day Christianity where Satan goes below the line in your own life, going below the line when there is a discount of truth of the scripture, erring into what is called theological liberalism or even pragmatism where you're taking what God says is good and just do what God says is good and well, let's kind of create something that's outside of that for our own good. It's dangerous to question God's truth to make you feel more spiritual or part of a group. What you're doing is ignoring both the content which was calling for obedience, and the point of God's word, which is for their life and their joy by bringing them down below what God's word said. Did God actually say about sexuality, about authority, about polity, about qualifications of a pastor? Did God actually say that? Satan had one goal in mind, to distract her. He had one goal in mind, was to deconstruct her belief. Now, another way he does this is a second way within this Second point is he belittles God. His own words should have struck Eve as, I don't want to play with that guy because he is belittling my God. Observe the language of the serpent. I've already talked about how the serpent is subtle, but watch how he carefully uses his words in order to get Eve to change hers. It's brilliant. It's frightening, but it's so brilliant. Look at the words, Lord God, in your passage. In the first verse, those words in Hebrew are Yahweh Elohim, the first First case of Lord God in that passage. And our Lord God is our, is our personal, full, sovereign Lord. Whenever the Lord God is used in this case, it is not only signifying Elohim, the sovereign one over everything, but it is also applying the name, the personal name of God himself, Yahweh himself, towards the sovereignty. This is their God. And when the narrator said, now when the Lord God, on and on and on, look at what happens. When Satan now speaks. Look at look at God when the serpent mutters it. It's just God, just one word there. This isn't a trick. There were two words, Lord God previously, and then it's God here. Taken like this is fully God, but in it is a language that is used to describe the God of the universe, this worldly word to describe the the name and the character of the one true God. But it but it is just a subtle taking away of a title or a name of the Lord God. So why would Satan purposely change God's name when talking to Eve? Why why did Moses bring up this example of this actual thing that is happening where for chapters, for a chapter now, he'd been described as the Lord God or called the Lord God, and then when Satan comes on the scene, he just says, Elohim. You can assume that he wanted to do this. And an under-table form of lowering man's view of Yahweh. He's essentially pulling a bait-and-switch on Eve, Come in with a tone of wanting her attention. Come in with with almost Christianese language. Come in of like, no, we're all talking about the same thing. I use God too. Listen to me. You can imagine saying, come in with a tone of wanting her attention because he doesn't want to speak of the God that we know, that we have seen in the first couple of chapters. Now check this. The biggest issue of this language part is how Satan wants wants to cut at the sovereignty of God. Because from verses 2 through 4, or from uh, chapter 2, verse 4, all at once, you get this uh, post. Let me start that sentence over. Because, comma, from chapter 2, verse 4 and on, once you get past the original creation account in chapter 1, from chapter 2, verse 4 on, notice this. Look at, at, scan with your eyes on verse 4, chapter 2. Lord God. Look at verse 5. Lord God. Look at verse 7. Lord God. Look at verse 8, Lord God. Verse 9, Lord God. Verse 18, Lord God. Verse 19, Lord God. Verse 21, verse 22. Chapter 3, verse 1, Lord God, Lord God. Lord God. And you find, again, the Lord God walking in the garden in verse 8 of chapter 3, and the Lord God calling to man in verse 9, and the Lord God saying to the woman in verse 13, and the Lord God saying to the serpent in verse 14, and verse 21, the Lord God made garments. And in verse 22, the Lord God said, and in verse 23, the Lord God sent. Moses isn't merely or accidentally telling us who the main character is on the stage, but he is pointing out that the one who is now at center stage of our narrative does not consider God the way you and I do. He hates him. He wants to downplay him. He wants to take something away from him. Remember he wants to employ you. He's not talking about the personal relational creator. He's just talking about something that you you don't need to worry about. And because if there's anything that he hates, it is the personal goodness of God. God is no longer Satan's God. Satan hates God. He won't even acknowledge Him. He won't even say His name. He won't even say the great I Am. He calls out Elohim, which is less personal than Yahweh, because surely His, his thing, this thing that Eve is now dealing with, surely this, this thing wouldn't boss Eve around. He wants, he wants Eve to be free. Surely He wouldn't put restraints on her for her own goodness. It's the sovereignty that he sought to overthrow within his rebellion. That's what Satan did in the beginning. It is the sovereignty that got him thrown out of heaven. And so what he really wants is in a demeaning way to refer to the one who has now been clearly identified as Lord God, as just God. Now again, Satan is speaking to Eve in order to create doubt. And from doubt, the tempter advances to a direct denial of the truth he, he creates a different character in play and then says, surely this character doesn't want what he previously said he wants. So you can see here how it's both subtle, but also how much he belittles God. Uh, third thing you see in the way that he goes after Eve is he messes with God's word not only messes with God's name, but he messes with God's word. Satan attacks Adam and Eve in a way that deprives them of the word and to make them believe his lie after they've lost the word and their trust in God altogether. Or more simply put, Satan casts doubt on God's word. Look at the connotation that Satan uses when he speaks about God's word. In verse 1, he casts a negative connotation when he reverses the order of the words. Turn back in your Bible to chapter 2, verse 16 and 17. Chapter 2, verse 16 and 17, where it says, And the Lord God commanded the man, saying, You may surely eat of every tree in the garden of the garden, but of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil you shall not eat, for in the day you eat of it you shall surely die. Now go back to chapter 3, verse 1. Satan, subtly asking, Did God actually say, you shall not eat of any tree in the garden? You see that subtle switch there? Satan is trying to make God out to be a bad person. How? Satan is trying to make God out to be a restricting person, restricting someone from something. And there are so many lessons here that we just don't have time to go into, but maybe you can talk about it with other people. Others may say God is oppressive. Religion, they say, brings turmoil and war and corruption. God is this uh, maniacal creature who just has control problems all around him. But by switching up God's word, not just by belittling his name, but by switching up God's word, Satan's question was designed to start Eve down a path, a path of questioning, is that good? And then a path of doubting, is God good? And then a path of questioning God. And finally, a path where it shows itself in disobeying God altogether. God's precise words are true. And Satan's intentional misguiding questions are very evil. Now, oftentimes, just an easy application from this is when you feel attacked by Satan or someone else, when you feel like the odds of life are against you, when they are saying words against you, You can fight against their words by knowing God's word. In this case, we won't talk about it much, but Adam was off to the side on this. Every indication is that Adam was there in present present form. And whenever Satan is misconstruing God's word, you just kind of go, hey man, you're literally the king of the world here. You should have been inserting yourself in front of the woman being like, first of all, that's not what his word said. And second of all, get out of here. You know, I've told you all this before. What do you do when a snake starts talking to you? You kill it, right? Don't even mess with it. You have no idea what's happening there. What should have Adam done when this relational creature starts talking to him? Not today, right? But especially when he's messing with God's word. Satan is distorting truth and attempting to mix it up in order to get us to do what? To be led astray and to lower our view of God. Remember who he hates more than anything else? He hates God. What can he do to, to bring down the glory that God has? He can, have, he, can have, he can have one of God's creatures, one of God's people, the, the elect pinnacle of God's six-day creation, to say, he's not what I thought he was, and I don't need him anymore. Another thing that he does here, another part of his strategy, is he normalizes himself. Satan normalizes himself. Satan lured Eve by captivating her attention into thinking that he is equal or even more trustworthy than God. He's winning Eve over by doing what? Getting her to talk, almost like a flirtatious banter to to him about what he wants to talk about. Rather than running away from him, she comes closer. Now, thinking about this text, I've been thinking about different things which are aren't necessarily evil but are tempting. Uh, you have to ask those things and line those things up and do those things lure us towards holiness or do those things bring into question or cause the question of God's goodness altogether? Do they, do they draw us towards greater holiness or do they distract us and draw us away from God's holiness? Beyond being good with words or confusing Eve with uh, God's own commands, Satan is ultimately locking her into thinking that he, Satan, is on her side. Hey, I'm just asking questions so that you really know what's going on. Hey, I just want you to have a great life. Does God actually say that? What if, what if it was a little bit different than what he said? Wouldn't that be cool? And all of a sudden, it's like, wow, you seem like you really care about me. This sounds really In fact, I've got more questions for you. You can see how this will pan out in regular time. This is what predators do. They lure you in. They sucker you in. And then they seek to destroy. This is big time. Now we, we see this all around us. We need to know who's hunting after us. We need to know that they're cutting at the nobility of God. We need to acknowledge that they want to tear apart God's word. Satan got Eve to believe him through a question. He didn't even give an answer. He became a trusted creature, one that she never saw coming. Satan got her to doubt the character of God and doubt God's word, making him the one with the answers. It's ironic because it is demonic. The first thing to question became the one that Eve trusted. The very first one to bring up a question, now all of a sudden they're the beacon of truth. Now to review real quick before going on to the third point, Satan will come after you, friend, in a subtle, cunning, conniving way just as he did with Eve. He'll approach you like he approached her with a, with a double-edged sword. One side was for cutting at the nature of God and the other for cutting at God's word. You see how primary this is and how people assault our God every day. This, this is how we may accidentally even assault other people by, by talking wrongly or falsely about God or talking wrongly or falsely about God's word. God wouldn't do that. God, God honestly is like your boyfriend. Remember seeing that on a t-shirt at Mardell 20 years ago? Jesus is my boyfriend. One, disgusting. Two, no. Three, get out of here. Right? Sorry if you bought one. Burn it. Also, you think of people talk about God's word. Well, I think God said this. What did Yahweh sound like when he told you that? You better be really careful and back it up with a Bible verse if you're going to be talking on behalf of God. That's what Satan did here. Demonstrated himself to be like him, but also to make you think that he's talking like him. Now, a third and final aim that Moses has from this text this is, this is where Moses, if you think of this, I've said this like 20 times already in the sermon, Moses is writing to a particular people to encourage them in their faith, and he's taking their directed head back to where everything went wrong, and now, in many ways, he's shifting them again to go forward. So, you and I need to understand why we are the way we are so that we can then take another step forward day after day. Moses is aiming, so thirdly, Moses is aiming for us to consider our placement after Genesis 3. Moses is aiming for us to consider our placement in this world after Genesis 3. The first two is who, how things are. Chapter 3 is what happened. But then the reason why he's writing about what happened is so that you and I can understand our placement and wherever God has us. Where, Where has God placed you? And what are we to take away from this? Well, you and I need to recognize that we are very different than Adam and Eve. We are very different than Adam and Eve, and that should be well known. We are not the same. We are not standing in the same light. They were being hunted. And you need to recognize that you and I have already been caught by sin. They were being hunted by Satan and his cohorts, but you and I have already been caught. That's the doctrine of original sin. We, on our own, have a sinful nature from the very beginning. Now, when babies are born, what, what, every, what does every grandma say? That is the most precious and perfect little baby. What, what, are, what are the rest of us now going to do in Genesis 3? Well, you know, it's a, it's a little bit sinful, so not that great. Now, I wouldn't bring that up in a hospital bed next to your wife she has, after she has a baby. But Adam and Eve, what were they? They were deemed very good. And what does the Scripture say about you and I in our, in our heart of hearts, in our very nature? Separated? Wretched? Placed outside, sinful, needing to be saved from the outside again. We are not the same and we are not standing in the same light. They were being hunted and you and I have already been caught. Because Adam and Eve sinned, we now, you and I now forever, live in their original sin genetically. We've inherited their sin. We have, we have you could almost say, a worldly father and that father has now marked us by sin. We are born into the sin. And this much is explained throughout the, the rest of the Old Testament and the New Testament. Why did these, uh, why did these previously uh, been called people to be fruitful and multiply and bless the earth seem to always go out of control in their own sinful pursuit because we've been born into sin, but also we are dead in our own sin's trespasses because we also sin. So we are, we are naturally sinful, but we are also volitionally sinful. So we basically can't look at this text the same way that Adam and Eve would look at this text. You and I have to look at this text and we have to go, okay, that's how it started. But also look at the effects of how it's spoken into all of our lives. Because when the Bible talks about our sin, we are, we're already spiritually dead in the first place. So the real question rises from that. How do you and I react knowing that we are sinful and unworthy? There, there has been for the last 15 to 20 years... of of music history, been a dogmented, regular, repeated phrase of, of singers and rappers and all kinds of people wanting you to understand who they naturally are. And you just have to accept them for who they are. I am this way. I am that way. This is my nature. So how do we react to this? The Christian reaction to that is, however, you were made the way you were, whatever your nature seems to be the way it is, however you think you were born, what the scripture says, as an effect from Adam and Eve, you must be born again. You have an inherited sinful heart that needs to be regenerated and remade from something outside of it. Because when the Bible talks about our sin, we already are spiritually dead. But 1 John chapter 1 verse 8 says, if we say that we have no sin, we deceive ourselves. And if we say that we have not sinned, it says in verse 10, we make him God to be a liar. So one sin for us means that we are forever separated. But in chapter 2 of verse John, it says if anyone does sin, they have an advocate with the Father Christ Jesus the righteous. He is the propitiation for our sins. Now, how did this happen from Genesis 3 all the way in 1 John, which if you're unfamiliar, that's really later on in the Bible. How can we who say we have no sin deceive ourselves, but if we do sin, we have an advocate with the Father? How did this come about? What has happened for our sake? We see this as the great adventure, in many ways, of the Scriptures, beginning in chapter 3, verse 15, uh, where we'll go into it in great detail next week, where this verse, though, before we get there, it is describing the first time that because there has been a battle royale between man and man. And between the serpent, there is going to be an eternal battle royale that will have a finishing point when the outcome or the, uh, the offspring of the woman will ultimately crush the seed of the serpent in the exact same way that Adam should have. And until that time, we find ourselves to be in Adam rather in the Messiah that is going to come from this text. A redeemer, a serpent crusher will make his appearance in chapter 3 verse 15 of this text. And, and within that, a promise from God to Satan and to others, that there will be a descendant of Eve who will come and bruise the head of the serpent. Now, the difference between you and me and Adam and Eve is that they were being hunted and you and I have already caught. But the offer that is being given to us, that was only a glimmer of hope in Adam and Eve, is that that offer of being made right, that offer of being made whole, that offer of being forgiven in the same way that they needed to be forgiven, is given to us. In the very person of Jesus, who did effectively and historically come from the seed of the woman. Because we're offspring of Adam, we have been caught by Satan, but because of our faith in Christ, we are no longer a slavery to his genetic makeup, but we have been, or we have, have hearts that have been made new through the effective regeneration of Christ Jesus. God has promised a Messiah and a deliverer of, how, of who we know is Christ Jesus who was truthfully prophesied from this scripture, who was truthfully, truthfully proclaimed from all of the Old Testament and into the New Testament, who would come and crush the head of the serpent. Now, friend, know that Christ didn't come to fight only Satan, but he came to pay a price for what your sins have caused on your own life. You look around and you say, oh, it's their fault You know, Or or the, the tricky question that you might go, was it Eve's fault or was it Adam's fault? Well, the New Testament says it was both. And so you can go, oh, that's why things are the way they are, because of Adam and Eve at the garden. If I was there, I would have done better. Or because I'm not there, I need to know how to live now. And what the promise says throughout the rest of Scripture is that it was Jesus who came not only to conquer Satan and the death that he caused in the own resurrection of his body, but also he came to conquer the very sins that you and I, or Adam and Eve, committed in the garden by his own death. Because of our wrongness, we deserved a lifetime of separation. And the only way that we could escape being bound and being caught by God is by a true replacement sacrifice, where we cannot today go to God and say, If I can give you anything to make me right, I will give you everything in order for me to be made right. But God would look at that and say, you don't have enough because you're born in sin. You can't do enough because you are sinful in your own actions. But here we see in the rest of Scripture where it is longing for and then given to us in the Gospels, where it was the one who came from the seed of the serpent. who did—or Man, another heresy, second week in a row. Who did come from the seed of the woman, not the seed of the serpent in order to crush the sin that was given to man. Your sins, though they are as real as anything, are no match to Christ's atoning work on the cross and that outcome. Your salvation in Christ through your faith in him is the way that you and I are to read Genesis 3 from verse seven on. Let me be very clear on this issue. The devil tempted you. You have sinned against God and deserve his wrath. However, Christ died on the cross for the sins of his children, conquering their debts, and then three days later, conquering death forever. His death, Jesus' death and resurrection were what it took to save your soul from the eternal state that it should have remained in, where he brought you to himself. And this much is what we will forever rejoice in. But what about, that, what about that serpent that still chases you and causes your life to be chaotic? A lot of you still feel like you're in the garden. A lot of you know that you feel like you are in the midst of a garden where Satan and his cohorts are after you. You need to recognize that Eve and Adam thought that they could solve this problem on their own. They thought they could solve this problem with an action or even with an answer. They thought their solution for this problem was within themselves. But their problem was already in themselves, and they needed something outside of themselves to save them. It is only by the power of God that you can flee from Satan into his own righteousness. It is only by the truth that we have and the goodness that we can look at and go to can we flee from evil and go to his righteousness. Or in Eve's case, we can remain in the rest that God has provided for us. Man's problem is internal and the solution is completely outside of him. And so Christian, when you are tempted by Satan, do not become his audience. Resist him and have the confidence that Christ will remain your guiding wisdom and hope in the same way that Adam and Eve should have had the confidence that their God who made them for each other, for their good, and said everything was good, was still their God at the end of the day. And for the rest of the scriptures, we see that this hunt continues on where God will prove to be the victor, knowing that if you are in him, as you look to the hills and call out for a refuge, you recognize that that refuge has been provided for you in the very person of Christ who gives you rest to where you need no more. Let's pray. Our God, we pray to you and ask that you would continue to shape us into your Son, Jesus. We pray in thankfulness that you give us uh, an awareness of why things are the way they are. We thank you that your word gives us uh, a recollection and an awareness, a glimpse of your goodness and your glory. And Lord, we do ask that you would continue to give us armor, for the battle of head. Pray that you would give us Christ more and more, and awareness of him more and more, so that we can enjoy all that you have provided for us. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.